disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. Wow, wow, wow. Today is going to be fun. Jack Carr is a former U.S. Navy SEAL. Uh, he served in Afghanistan, and now he is a best-selling author of thrillers that are set in that sort of um, covert action sort of underworld type place. I freaking love his books. Um, he's got four books out, and uh, the latest one, The Devil's Hand, actually was he started writing it in uh, August of 2019 before the pandemic started, and it's about... An enemy of the United States releasing a pandemic into the United States. Whoa! Freaky. Freaky. Um, and it's, it's uh, wow. So we're going to talk about that book. We're going to talk about his experience as a Navy SEAL. And we're going to talk about his reaction to the debacle that is going on in Afghanistan right now. So I think you're going to need to buckle up for this one. I know I say that a lot, but for real. You should probably be sitting down for this. That's all coming up in just a second. Right now, though, real quick, thanks to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Go to LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com to find out more. Tim Montgomery has been a friend of mine since they did our kitchen. I uh, became friends with him after being a customer because I respected his work ethic and his craftsmanship, his pride in his work, the work that his crews did, the whole process, the service after the sale, SAS as I like to call it. And I, I highly recommend it to anybody who's looking to do their kitchen or even a bathroom remodel. I go, listen, you need to call my buddy Tim because they're going to take good care of you. If you're, think, if you're thinking about like taking advantage of these super low interest rates right now on home equity loans and you just take a little bit of the equity out of your home and put it right back into your home by building the dream kitchen that's going to make your home either your dream house or you know, uh, amp up the value of it a little bit, um, this, is, this, this is a place to go. And they can do it like from uh, – you can say, hey, I want all my appliances on the other side of the room, right? Tear out this wall. They can do all of it. I'm, turn, I'm talking turnkey remodel. Also, if you're a do-it-yourself or you already know what you want, you can be like, I need these measurements, cut this for me, and I want those cabinets because they've got cabinets in stock that are high quality, super beautiful, and very affordable. George, Michelle, and Kelly are all standing by, the designers, to take your call at 502-930-3304 or go to LouisvilleCabinetsAndCountertops.com. Central Kentucky, Louisville, uh, Southern Indiana, this is your place to get your kitchen redone. Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. All right. Now our conversation with Jack Carr. We started talking about our dogs because my dog is barking because uh, he's all excited about something. Uh, and here we go. Well, dude, I um, never pick up. I don't know if I don't know the person. If it doesn't come up as a contact, right. I don't. Uh, I don't pick up. Exactly, exactly. But it always makes me nervous too because I'm always like, am I missing an interview right now? Right. Because it happened once a long time ago. So now right. I'm always like, I'm programmed to be worried. Right. I'm gonna let my dog out of the studio here real quick, and I'll be right back. So open cool. the door. Dog life, man. So what, I understand. What, yeah, we got one right here, too. What I do is, uh, what kind of dog you got? We have a Swiss Mountain Dog. Oh, sweet. Those are beautiful. Um, yeah. Mine's kind of a mutt. He's a husky slash um, oh, uh, nice. border collie. So uh, oh, awesome. super sweetie. Yeah. Um, but it's funny. I, By the way, big fan of yours. Um, I have, first of all, I got to tell you a funny story. So my, you hear my dogs barking in the background. Just disregard <laughs> that. Um, so. I have my wife is a big fan of Brad Thor. Okay, 
mm-hmm. and she makes me get his new book every year for Christmas. Well, I heard you on Joe Rogan's podcast, and I said, I got to get this for my wife. So I get it because she, she and I both love these kind of like these thrillers, these sort of Navy SEAL, U.S. military spy action, all that kind of behind the scenes, deep cover, that kind of stuff. So I bought her your books, and now she's ad- addicted to it. So now I have to buy nice. Brad Thor and Jack Carr books every Christmas. Yes. But the cool thing is, <laughs> I know you have like there's a connection between you and Brad, right? I mean, he's kind of yep. what helped you get started. Oh yeah, he cracked the door to to publishing, and uh, as he as he tells the story, he like he thought they would just you know read a paragraph and then get back to him and say, hey, we read a paragraph. What do you want? What do you want us to tell this guy? <laughs> just right. like keep going, don't quit, you know? And that's what he thought was going to happen. And, uh, but instead they, uh, read the whole thing, loved it. And then they called Brad and said, Hey, you know, we, uh, we love it. We want this, but, uh, you know, kind of you're a political thriller guy. What, uh, you know, what do you want us to do? And, uh, Brad was so awesome. He's like, I want you to publish Jack. That is so cool. <laughs> He's like, just don't publish him in the same month as me. That's, right. <laughs> it was too cool. So, but, uh, but Brad's awesome. He's like, when, it, when he first you know told me that if I, finished the novel he would let new york know it coming it was coming he also put the caveat in there that uh hey i can't guarantee they'll open the package can't guarantee they'll read one word and definitely can't guarantee that they'll like it right so uh but that was all i needed uh and then he said he said uh, when are you gonna be done and i said a year from today and then i called him back a year from from that day and said it's done so he definitely cracked that door for me but uh as he'll say, uh, I kicked it in from there, which is kind of cool. Way. Well, that's what cool you guys do. That's what you guys do as Navy SEALs. You kick in doors. You don't. You don't knock on that's the door. It. You just kick it in. I have right? a little bit of experience there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and and what what's interesting too about your story is that you pretty much wanted to do this from like, how old were you when you decided I'm going to grow up be a Navy SEAL and then I'm going to write books about it? Yeah, age seven, I wanted to be a SEAL, and even before that, I knew I was going to serve in the military. It was just that thing it was just kind of innate in me. Um, my grandfather uh, was killed in World War II off Okinawa in 1945. So I grew up with uh, pictures of his plane and his uh, him with his squadron and that sort of thing. Uh, and then I found out what SEALs were at age seven. And I was like, okay, that's me. That's where I want to go. Uh, found out that it was the toughest training ever devised by a modern military, or at least that's <laughs> what I read back in the early 80s. Right. And, uh, and that uh, their special operators are some of the best in the, in the world. So I said, that's where I'm, that's where I'm going. So I stayed focused on that. But in the early eighties, you could go to the library and read almost everything on special operations in about an hour. I mean, there was not much written back in the early eighties about, it was mostly about SEALs in Vietnam, CIA special operations in Vietnam, some, uh, a couple books from, uh, special forces guys about Vietnam, a couple mentions about those things in, in, in books. But, uh, a lot of what I learned came from the pages of thrillers. Uh, my mom was a librarian. So I, Grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading, and I started reading books by guys like Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and uh, David Morrell and A.J. Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter and all these guys who had protagonists, who had main characters that had backgrounds, fictional backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. So I just fell in love with those books, and uh, from about, I would say, fifth grade on, I knew that I was going to eventually, after my time in the military, write thrillers just like I was enjoying, and uh, I've been a lifelong reader which prepared me to uh to write the same kind of books that i loved yeah i you know what's interesting i'm fascinated with writing my problem is i'm like totally add right like i cannot you know i could talk for five hours but right how do you and, and you guys especially as special forces guys is there something in like you have a whole lot of hurry up and wait and then it's like bam right 
is there oh, something yeah. in that that helps you sort of with that when you when you have to get to that place where you have to totally calm yourself down you have to shut everything and everyone out I mean how do you do it what's your process like in, in sitting down and writing these books because your books are so deeply detailed I mean it clearly when when you're reading a Jack Carr book you're like this freaking dude was there right like that's how you feel you're like this guy was I mean, like like it he, he's talking about himself right in a lot of ways it's so detailed how do you do that yeah well especially this last one so the first uh three um, you know, I'm confirming things that uh, I may have forgotten or, uh, you know, glossed over over the years or something like that when I'm talking about weapons and tactics and, and that sort of thing. But this last one, uh, The Devil's Hand, was really about things where I, where I had no, no touch point in the military or in my background at all, bioweapons, uh, that sort of thing. So that one took a lot of research. And of course, then as I'm writing, I run into a question about that research and have to reach out to someone else, confirm something, do a little more research, make sure it's going to work, uh, not just talk to one person who worked in that field in bioweapons and uh, research, that sort of thing, but multiple people, uh, because everybody in that world leaves something out when they talk to you because there's so much right. classified information. And But if you talk to five different people uh, about the same thing, well, each one's going to leave something out, but it might be different than the other guy. So you could piece together this story and then you do your research and you go into medical journals then you piece together this puzzle to put something together that is very close probably to being what uh what the united states has in place when it comes to bioweapons and bioweapons research and in response to a bioweapon attack that sort of a thing so uh the process for me has so far anyway because i'm on writing my fifth book right now and the process has been to write a one-page executive summary uh kind of like a what you'd read on the back of a book to get you interested in it almost right uh, then to take that and turn that into an outline that uh, has a has three parts, has a prologue, has an epilogue, and then take that outline and turn that into the book. So that's been my process thus far. So I know where I'm going in writing. You call it you're either a pantser or a plotter. And pantser means you write by the seat of your pants. You don't know where it's going. <laughs> um, but for me, <laughs> but for me, I've always known I've had that that outline as a guide. And of course, it morphs as you develop the characters as you're writing. And really, as I'm writing, I develop those characters through their dialogue and interaction with one another. They come alive during that process. In the outline phase, I don't really know exactly who they are, um, but when they start talking to one another, uh, then their personalities come out, then their backgrounds come out. I have a little bit of background going into it uh, as a foundation for the characters, but they really blossom as I'm writing, as I'm in that phase where I'm taking it from the outline to the actual story. So that makes it's, sense. Uh, it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's, uh, I love every part of the process. I love editing. I do do something that most people don't do and most authors will tell you not to do and I can't get away from it. Maybe someday I will, but it's the editing as I go. Okay. And for whatever reason, I just can't uh, get to the, just go and get to the five, get to the end. I have to finish a chapter and make it uh, not in its final form, not quote unquote perfect or 95% perfect, but good enough where I'm happy to move on. And it's right. very subjective, obviously what that point is, but I can't just like, okay, I did chapter four yesterday. I'm going on to chapter five today. No, I'm not going to go back to chapter four. I'm going to get it to a place where if I'm writing chapter five, I'm not thinking back to what I need to change in chapter four. Like thinking back, like, oh, that could have been better. So I, uh, so I get them as good as they can be. And then I move on to the next one. But uh, once again, you're also running into these you know, walls here and there and you have to figure things out. And, and, uh, and sometimes I'll just put a bunch of X's on the page if it's going to take a ton of research and I'm going to have to like, spend a couple of days doing the research to figure it out uh, and I'll just continue on. But, uh, but for the most part, I'll stop and I'll do the research and get it as good as it can, as it 
as it can be, or at least at that point where I'm comfortable moving on. So I, I love it all. It's, it's, it's fun. It's aggressively solving problems, creatively solving problems on the page, which is, you know, what I did downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in this case, uh, solving those problems on the page, uh, the consequences of messing up are a lot less dire and I can always go back and edit. Yeah, right. It's not life and death in that situation, but I, I was going to ask if that actually comes from the way you trained as a SEAL, because don't you guys, like when you're prep, prepping for a mission, you, do you break? I mean, how do you train for a mission like that? Do you pr break it down like that into sections and then perfect each section so that when it comes time to uh, almost like a game plan, you know, it's quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four, so that then when it all lays out, I mean, how does that actually work? Well, you're, it's all about adaptability because you know, uh, and that's why you talk about contingency plans, and that's probably one of the most important pieces of the mission planning process is going through each phase of the operation and saying, okay, we're going to target, we're loading on helicopters here. And, you know, we're flying 45 minutes and then we're landing and then we're going to uh, patrol in for another two hours or whatever it is. And then you talk about, OK, what happens if one of the helicopters goes down of this first phase? OK, what, what then? So you're not figuring that part out as you're in the helicopter and something you get and one of the other ones goes down uh, or we land, they leave. We're going to the target and we get contacted 10 minutes in. You know, you're not like then figuring it out. You already know what's going to happen because you've anticipated that part ahead of time. So you do as much of that as possible. But of course, when you're on the ground and something does happen, then you have to flex. You have to adapt because that's what the enemy is doing to you. You have to right. uh, look for uh, gaps in the enemy's defenses. You have to look for places to capitalize on momentum. Um, and all of that is, uh, you know, they're audibles essentially. But you have a solid foundation from which to make those decisions so right. uh every mission is uh obviously different but every mission also has these elements that are the same that you have to do going in and you're of course the guys you're going in with have this foundation this base level of training um that uh, you can all fall fall back on because you've worked up together for a certain amount of time before you go in so it's uh yeah it was a good it was a good time i was in for 20 years and it's uh yeah it, it uh i don't know i guess it was a good time to be in because you got to actually do what you trained for um, after September 11th anyway. Right. And uh, and now it's, you know, obviously seeing what's happening in Afghanistan is just is just heartbreaking um, yeah. right now. But I, uh, I, I want to talk about that with you because yeah. I, I got to get your reaction to this. Um, you know, I've always been I've never liked the term nation building ever since I heard it when George Bush mm -hmm. put it. But I fully supported going in there and kicking the Taliban's ass. Um, and getting, Os getting Osama bin Laden 100%. But what is happening right now it, to me, and, and I, I, you got to feel it even more because how many, how many, gosh, I mean, you probably can't even talk about how many missions you did, but you did a ton of missions in Afghanistan. I mean, you were part of that toppling of the Taliban. You were part of essentially keeping Americans safe from terrorism for the last couple of decades, right? Yeah. So I got to Afghanistan in 2003. And wow. then after, well, you're right that, after, yeah, that that uh, so the guys that were there in 2001, 2002, you know, that's when we really had our initial successes on the battlefield. That's where we hit what uh, Clausewitz would have called the uh, culminating point of victory, meaning that if you continue to push past that point, you turn your success into failure. Um, he was very clear on that. Um, and that's what we did. And unfortunately, you can go back 
now and look at troop levels in, 2000, in December of 2001 into, into early 2002. You can look at the uh, the Bonn conference on the uh, uh, strategic level uh, and not bringing the Taliban into that in, uh, in 2001, um, but really on the ground in December. That was the closest we came to getting bin Laden until we actually got him you know 10 years later right. but uh we didn't have a very robust footprint uh, and for whatever reason we didn't flood the country we had special operations on the ground and those guys were crushing and we also had some afghan partners on the ground and relying on those afghan partners back in december of 2001 um and not understanding the culture of of changing sides to the winning side and tribal alliances and warlord all that sort of thing um, probably prevented us from actually getting Bin Laden at our where we had the best chance wow. in December of 2001. Um, so after that point, you know, I with the the intellectual inertia of some of our leaders, both political and military, and I'm not letting them off the hook either. Thank um, you. Because <laughs> the senior, yeah, our senior level leaders, like if we had made a mistake when I'm talking about these tactical missions that we just talked about, right. uh, you know, coming up with a plan, going in, adapting, all that sort of thing. If we messed up at that level, we're held accountable. And not only are we held accountable, but we want to share the lessons learned with other units so that they don't make those same mistakes. Uh, so we're all getting stronger as a whole. So that's the tactical level. And if you mess up bad enough, yeah, you're sent home, you're court-martialed. There's a lot of things can go wrong. But if you mess up at a strategic level, um, like we've seen now, like we're watching unfold right now, um, and and as we've seen over the last 20 years from like December 2001, early April 2002 onward, um, what do those guys do? Well, they get promoted. They fail upward at those levels. And then they go and they retire and they sit on boards of companies that have ties to the defense industry. Um, but they are, no one has been held accountable for uh, strategic level mistakes the same way that we would be held accountable at the tactical level uh, for messing something up on target. Um, and that's really not how it's always been. It's uh, from 1947 onward, that's how it's been. And interestingly enough, 1947 is when we changed the uh, uh, War Department to the uh, Department of Defense. It's when we changed the name of the Secretary of War to the Secretary of Defense. Um, and then really through Vietnam, we saw senior level leaders uh, not held accountable for failures yeah. uh, for, what, for whatever reason. So, and that continues today. There seems to be a lot of that going around in our politics today. And, and I think it's one reason why we're making ever worse decisions. You know, like I got up this morning, I saw the headline that, that Biden is going to stick to this ridiculous timeline. I think it's the end of the month, August 30th, whatever, to get people out. And I'm like, that's not how America works. America doesn't let some third world group of, you know, freaking nut jobs, religious fanatics, tell us when and where we can get our people out. I mean, it's it's to me, I mean, I don't want to get too political, but honestly, it's the ultimate disgrace, right? I mean, all the things that you guys did to try to protect our country from terrorism, I mean, I gosh, you can tell I'm, I'm frustrated with this, but I'm just like, are you serious? Like, we're letting the Taliban set the timeline for us? The, the timeline is when America comes in, we're going to get our people out. And if you get in the way, we're going to freaking blow you up, right? Like, that should be the timeline. I, I don't get exactly. it. Exactly. No, it's uh, to have the Taliban dictating what we can and can't do after 20 years of war is uh, one. It's it's heartbreaking, and uh, and two, it decreases like on a strategic level. Obviously, it uh, degrades our standing on the world stage uh, in a way that we've never never seen before. Right. Um, so it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a disgrace. Uh, it's, it is, it's heartbreaking and, uh, it is that this part was avoidable. 
when I talk about losing the war in 2001, 2002, um, where we had those initial successes and where we hit that culminating point of victory, um, yeah, I believe that to be true. But I also believe that then we had 20 years to prep for this moment. Um, right, and right, if you study right. your history or you know that this moment is coming. So knowing that, what would you do? You would probably do things 180 out uh, from what has been done over these last couple months right um it was just just ridiculous like you could not have done this worse had you been actively trying right um so so for me that's that's really the tragedy in all of this that uh that we knew this day was coming and then we did the worst job we possibly could it's like we learned nothing from the last 20 years and we also learned nothing from the pages of history we had 20 years to prepare for this and now we've rushed to failure well and we we, we didn't learn anything from benghazi um you know, I, I mean, Chris Peranto is a friend of mine. He's been on the podcast and on my radio show multiple times. And, you know, we talk about that's a situation we should have saw coming too. I mean, it was 9-11. Come on. You know, um, you know, it, and, and it's like it's like we again, no one took no one had to take responsibility. But the men who were heroes and defied orders initially lost their clearances because they defied orders because they saved American lives. Now we have the media covering for Biden in a, in a big way because like there's this whole thing. I don't know if you've seen this or not. But this just makes me sick to my stomach. They're now, they're, it's almost like the media is helping to rebrand the Taliban. I'm like, while they're dragging women and children out of their homes in Afghanistan, the media is referring to them as the conciliatory tone of the new Taliban. I'm like, what the frick are you talking about, right? I mean, like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, my gosh, yeah. But what's also interesting is that some of those same media outlets that really obviously did cover for uh, the the current president during the election uh through the election up to today uh it's interesting to see some of them uh not turning on him but actually you know reporting what's out there it's like they can't you can't you can't cover for what we're seeing with our own True. eyes right here True. and some of those people that that uh would have covered for him for the, for a long time now are kind of like wait a like, minute he's like, <laughs> yeah they're like wait there's there's nothing you could have done better. Right. Kind of like I'm trying to help you here. I'm giving you an opportunity <laughs> right. to take some responsibility, accountability, and then say how you're going to take those lessons and move forward wiser and fix the problem and exhibit some leadership. But you're not taking the opportunity I'm giving you yeah. uh, in one-on-ones with the president and then people that are on the ground actually saying, hey, this is an absolute national disgrace that's going to stay in the United States, our country uh, for, for decades and probably forever. So, uh, and you're hearing that from people that uh, typically were, were covering for uh, the administration and uh, cheerleaders for it as well. Yeah, 100%. So we're talking with Jack Carr. I love your books. He's a former Navy SEAL. Um, you guys are like Marines, though. You're never former, right? Like it's always just maybe retired. No, the Marines get a, no, the Marines get really. Uh, and I put you don't say ex-Marine novel, ever. Yeah, <laughs> They'll no, punch I put you. That in my last novel, someone <laughs> I have characters talking, and she, one of the female characters, is like, "Wait, is it former Marines?" It's always confusing with those guys. My main character, James Reese, is like, uh, "I agree with you. It's, it is confusing with those guys." Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you got to say former Marine. I think that's acceptable. Okay. Um, but uh, you can't say ex-Marine, though. Right. Right. No. Uh, no. No. Um, Never say very, that. But I think you can say former, but even even with Marines, I stay away from that. I just say right. Marine just you, so you don't have to hear an earful. But with SEALs, hey, a former is fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> well, former is fine. I'm obviously in my office right now, and I'm not running out to uh, – you know, to join the guys, get on a helo and go into combat. And I'm not running, True. going out to rush to the O course to run through the O course this morning. So I'm very comfortable uh, with the nomenclature of, have, of of being a former SEAL. But the bottom line is you're kind of always a SEAL because you're always going to be a badass. But there's actually a tie in 
to your fourth book, Devil's Hand, to some of what's going on now and what has been going on in the last year. And one of the things, one of the underlying themes is that our enemies have been watching us. And so let me start with this as we kind of segue into your books and 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 how specifically that one parallels. But um, in this case, you are you concerned about what Russia, China, and Iran are seeing displayed here in terms of our actions and how we've reacted to this situation? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about that stuff when I was in uniform, uh, and I was in from 96 to 2016. Um, and I continue to think about these things as a citizen, and that really formed the basis for this fourth novel, The Devil's Hand, is that, hey, if I was Russia, if I was China, if I was North Korea, if I was Iran, if I was a super-empowered individual, if I was a terrorist organization, what would I have learned from watching the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan, Syria, some other hot spots around the world for the last 20 years? Uh, they've essentially been behind us as we've played poker, looking at our cards, seeing how we play those cards, taking those lessons, applying those lessons to future battle plans. So that really formed the basis when I outlined the novel in uh, August of 2019 before COVID. So I start writing, I start doing all this research into, into bioweapons and that sort of thing, because that's the catalyst that moves the story forward. But then we get to January and February <laughs> of 2020 and COVID hits. And I'm thinking, well, I'm in the shoes of the enemy right now as I write this book. What are they learning from our response to COVID? And then, of course, a summer of civil unrest hurt, uh, hits. And I said, hmm, well, what is the enemy taking from, from this, from our response to this? Then very contentious uh, election cycle uh, transpires where there looks like there's irreconcilable differences uh, in this country. Uh, those can be exploited. And I thought, well, what is the enemy learning from this? So all those things real time came into the novel as I was writing it because that theme was what's the enemy learned? What are right, they learning? Right. And that continues today. That book is out now, obviously. And but right now, the enemy is looking at what we're doing in Afghanistan and they're looking and they're taking notes and they're yeah. applying those notes to their future battle plans. No doubt about it. Um, we're showing we are definitely giving them a lot to work with, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And the, the other thing is that in the devil's hand, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but there's a pandemic. But that part mm -hmm. came out before the pandemic actually started. You didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic hit. And nope. The next thing you know, you're <laughs> writing a book as a pandemic hits about a pandemic hitting. That's Did that freak you out a little bit? Were you like, uh? Um, yeah, no, it didn't freak me out, but it gave me pause for a second uh, because, yeah, August of 2019, I'm going to, you know, the catalyst is that moving this forward is a, uh, a bioweapon that looks like it's a, a naturally occurring virus type thing. And so I'm doing all this research throughout the fall into bioweapons and and uh, into, into plagues and into just that background that I didn't have from my time in the military. And so in December, I start hearing about something in China. And I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. But it was just a data point because we've heard a lot of things. You know, you hear about, about uh, viruses in Africa. You hear about hear about viruses in, in China. You hear about these things every now and again. Um, so it didn't it wasn't really that abnormal in December to me anyway, just doing this research. But then we hit January and oh, yeah, then it starts to look a little different than the research that I've done that uh, that uh, pointed to different things happening in, let's say, 2000 or 1995 or, or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, it gave me pause for a second because I was like, wow, are people going to want to read a book? Uh, that has these pandemic tie-ins during a time when it is occupying every second of their day, or are they going to want to escape? Right. And I thought about it for a second, but at that point I was already all in anyway. And the book was made to me was, was so good. And, and it, it's surprising to me that it's a lot of people's favorite of the four, yeah. um, uh, which is interesting 
uh, to, to me as well, because it's the longest, uh, the most detailed as far as all this uh, this medical research goes. But uh, but I gave me pause for a second because I heard other authors, of course, talking about how they're not going to talk to use COVID in their books. They're going to just uh, you know, let people have this escape. And for me, they're, my books are so tied to, to reality mm-hmm. uh, and to what's going on in the world. There was no way I was going to ignore it. And uh, after that one initial pause, just to think about it for a second, then it was you know all in. Yeah. Um, just like I am with all my novels. So in a kind of educated opinion, what do you think our enemies have learned? about us in the last two years oh in the last two years over with covid uh since yeah since let's say covid afghanistan unrest yeah what do you think they've learned about us like what's the big lesson our enemies take away from us in the last two years about us and our society yeah so tactically they've learned that uh with that there is if there's a virus that has a uh infection rate like covid and but has a mortality rate like COVID as well. Um, and they've seen us shut down essentially our entire country. Um, well, what would we do if we had something with a, with a 50% mm. mortality rate, mm. um, even the 20% mortality rate or a 10 uh, or a five, know, something like that. Exactly. Or a 10 or a five. Um, cause they're, they're seeing what happened with this. Well, that's probably their biggest lesson is that, wow, these, this, the, they almost destroyed their entire economy, um, because of, uh, of this virus. Well, what if we, what if we ramp it up a little bit? So, so countries like China for sure are, well, are China, China that, doesn't uh, care if they, start. if they lost 5% of their own population, they'd be like, we don't care if that takes America out. Cool. Right. I yeah, mean, it's not as bad. <laughs> yeah. Certainly when you're dealing with that many, that many people, well, just I mean, that they, they no don't value human sure. life the way, I mean, it's communist communists don't value human life the way that people who love Liberty do like to them, population is just surplus workers it's i mean around the world uh, life has a uh, it seems anyway from having been a lot of these places that uh that life is not quite held in right. the same esteem as we do here in the united states which is, is insane but um but hey that's just how how things are in a lot yeah. of the world but yeah particularly in china when you're dealing with that sort of a, a population so so they've they've certainly learned that um and then strategically when they're looking at us and they're seeing these divisions they're, they're, and they're looking at how you can exploit these in the 21st century, which is different than how you'd have to exploit something, let's say, in 1955, if right. you're the Soviet Union looking to exploit things. There are, there are similarities, but there are more options and opportunities today with, uh, obviously, with social media and the information age and all, and all the rest of it. So um, you're taking all of these lessons and then you're applying them to a future battle plan that might not be in two years. It might not be in four years uh, because they think, obviously, in terms of centuries and we think in terms of four year election cycles, maybe eight years for the real deep thinkers among us. Right. But uh, but they're they're projecting these things out and yeah. they're they are patient. Uh, they're thinking generationally. Yeah. They're not just thinking, thinking a couple of years down the line. So uh, we've given them a lot to work with, to be sure. And my my hope is that we have some people in our intelligence agencies and uh, and in the government uh, in, on, the, on the military side and uh, and the political side that are taking these things into account because uh, the future of, of the country depends on it. Are we fixable? That is a great question. And I, 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 I hate when I get asked that because I want to remain positive. <laughs> right. You know, no, I, I want to stay positive for, uh, for my kids, for future generations. But I would be lying um, if I said that uh, uh, I'd be lying if I said that. I, that I, yes. If I just said yes, um, I think for 
where uh, if you look, let's just put it like this. Let's say uh, the British had two excursions in Afghanistan in the 1800s. Uh, their last one finished up in the early 1900s. Um, what happened to them shortly thereafter? Yeah. Um, and by shortly, I mean, you know, we're talking uh, in terms of history here. So uh, then look at the Soviet Union, 1979 to 89, Afghanistan. Right. What right. happened to them a couple of years later? Uh, right. Look at us, a 20-year excursion where we spent $2.26 trillion, uh, And this time we borrowed that money with it's uh it's right. financed on debt uh which means that future generations will be paying back 6.5 trillion dollars mm. uh and so we're saddling all of that um uh, that failure essentially on future generations that they now have to pay back or that makes us beholden to the, the, the countries that's hold, that are holding our debt. So there are a lot of factors at play here, and uh, I try to remain hopeful. Yeah. Uh, and I'm doing 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 what I can uh, uh, through my novels and and uh, podcast discussion discussing these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but it's going to take some bold adjustments, and I don't know if we have that in us as a country. The other yeah. side of this is that if I was an enemy. And this is the main thing that I took away from writing the last book. And, and it was a, a surprise to me when I got to this point. Uh, but it, I thought, if I was the enemy, I wouldn't, I'd just sit back and watch. Mm-hmm. We were doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside yeah. right now. They might not even have to release a virus. They might not have to take any any steps. They might just uh, you know, spur things along here and there with some uh, some technical uh, you know, cyber type uh, incursions or whatever every now and again, just to stoke some fires here and there or see what happens, get some data points. But we're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside out. And I, and I asked myself, hey, if I was to do, if I was to destroy this country from the inside, what would I be doing differently than we're doing to ourselves right now? And the answer is not much. Yeah. You know, you take, if you take two human beings. Sorry to be a downer no, right there. No, no. That's why I don't like that question because I, it, <laughs> You know, it's so, it's it's such a bummer. Well, the, the first the first step to fixing it is facing it. And you know, I was going to say if you have two two human beings and there's nuance allowed between them, they'll be friends. If you have the same two human beings and all the nuance is taken away, they'll kill each other. And that's what social media does. Yeah, and that's that's what we <laughs> Takes have away in America. All the nuance. Right. That's what we have. Yep. There's no nuance in our there's everything is you're either red team or blue team and if you're the other team we want you to die. I hope you die a painful death. I mean, I've had people say that to me because of my political oh, beliefs brutal. and I'm like you've got to be it's, kidding me. You know. Yeah, I call it digital courage online. Digital yeah. courage when people <laughs> right. uh, do that sort of thing. But yeah, nuance is gone even in op-eds. You know, I've been writing, you know, op-eds here on Afghanistan, but you have uh, 800 to 1200 words, depending on where, uh, depending on the outlet. Um, and of course, rather than taking time to digest an entire op-ed and thinking of things in terms of nuance, uh, people just look at uh, taking out a sentence here or there, or the headline, and then turning around to exploit it. Yeah, yeah. or the headline. Yeah, yeah. to to then uh, exploit it, so then they get a couple more clicks or followers. You know. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's such a, a tough time to be you know thinking about these uh, very uh, obviously uh, important topics uh, without having that, that nuance. And there's, there was a, there's a great picture and it, I need to find it and actually print it out, but it's uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, uh, Tip O'Neill, his wife uh, sometime in the eighties, obviously they're in tuxedos. They've, uh, <laughs> they're at the Kennedy, they're at the Kennedy center together yeah. laughing and yep. they've just gone to dinner together. Yeah. So they just went to dinner and they're at the Kennedy center all dressed up night out on the town. Yeah. Can you imagine the leaders of both parties going out on the town together 
Nancy right. Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell and what that and even if they did both sides would be like see they sold you know what yep. I mean it would still it oh, wouldn't yeah. even matter it wouldn't even matter so uh-huh. Two, oh yeah yeah people just turn it around like oh look at it conspiracy yeah it's just it's insanity so that's why you know like the question about being hopeful for the future is such a difficult one yeah to, uh, I get to it answer. it is all right two quick things I want to talk to you I know you, you got to run but there's two quick things I am kind of concerned also about the way we're pulling out of Afghanistan right now, I'm concerned about our troops' morale. I mean, over the last oh, yeah. two years, we've told them that they were essentially all the equivalent of terrorists uh, because, you know, the military is where all the white supremacists are or something like that. You know, that's what the media yeah. was saying. So we destroyed their, um, uh, you know, morale with that situation. Then we asked them to protect the Capitol. Then now we're telling them, oh, you guys all have to get a shot, whether you want to or not. And now, on top of that, we're abandoning Americans in Afghanistan, and it almost looks like everything we did was for nothing. It wasn't for nothing. But do you worry about your 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 fellow soldiers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right away. That's what I was thinking about last was a last a week and a half ago now as all this started to deteriorate. Um, and yeah, there are going to be those questions regardless. But now sure. we've compounded those kind of questions with the way that we're dealing with this uh, this withdrawal. Um, it, it couldn't have been done worse, one, for the situation, and two, for the veterans who served there or for the families who lost children, uh, who lost uh, kids, who lost parents, uh, brothers and sisters, who lost siblings, um, you know, husbands and wives lost spouses um so those families it's not just the veterans themselves not just the guys that came back missing arms and legs and eyes and all that sort of thing it's their families as well uh, yeah the families of those who didn't make it home yeah. as well um Oof. so it's uh it's definitely a tough time to be a veteran which is why every time i get on one of the, you know a show i try to talk about uh if you know somebody who's a veteran and you think they're having a hard time with this they are 100 percent having a hard time with this and the Bright side. Finally, we get to talk about a bright side. Right. Is that there are resources out there today that were not available uh, for guys coming back from Vietnam. Yeah. Um, so in that respect, there are options out there um, that uh, that are tailored to all these different issues that uh, that veterans are dealing with, uh, and they're also an internet search away. Yeah. So uh, if there is a silver lining to any of this, is that those options do exist today. And yeah. They didn't for for guys coming back from Vietnam. So and there's a lot of people of who care. There's a lot of people who care. People care. And, yeah. Exactly. I, I took a I was I got the honor of going along on an honor flight um, to D.C. one time. Mm-hmm. It was one of the great things I've ever been able to experience. But wow. I was drawn to the Vietnam veterans because they sort of separated themselves off as though they didn't feel like they deserved this because of how they had been treated. We have to never repeat that again. And we have to make sure that that those who went and fought and were a part of this are appreciated, loved supported backed up 100 percent and and i just hope you know people get that message and i'm glad you're out there talking about it all right i know you have to go but you got your you you can pre-order your newest book number five can you talk about that yet in the blood i sure can all right give people a little little breakdown yeah there'll be some resolutions in this one i've I've strung (laughs) out a storyline or two over the last few novels and uh, one of those storylines will uh, will come to fruition in this one. Awesome. And uh, yeah, it has some sniper on sniper action, and I'm in the middle of writing it right now. So as soon as we're off this call, I shut off all my uh, all my electronic devices uh, that that beep at me, and I continue working on that novel. So awesome. I'm super super fired up. About yeah. It. When's that come out? It's well, that's a great question because it was scheduled for April 12th. 
Okay. And I'll say, I'll say this. Um, there's a, well, there's a, uh, a series of my first novel, Amazon Prime Video, starring Chris Pratt, that is coming out sometime in 2022. Oh, and, yes. Uh, I was going to ask it, about that. That's coming out. Uh, Chris Pratt is uh, is starring as J- the James Reese yeah, character, James right? Reese. I cannot That's wait. Right. That's going to be freaking uh, awesome. I cannot wait. That's it, it looks so good. Yeah, I've seen six of the eight episodes so far. Uh, and they've done an amazing job with it. Chris has crushed it. Antoine Fuqua, the uh, the director and executive producer, has uh, has crushed it. These guys are amazing. So I'm super fired up to get it out there. But that also means, and I think the best way to put it, because it's top secret when it's coming out. Right, I got um, you. <laughs> but you might want to move the date of a book that you have coming out that's uh, part of the series. Right. And not have it in competition with the first book that's going to get the Amazon uh, marketing push. I hear you. Uh, so you, so you <laughs> might not want those coming out exactly at the same time. So right now, exactly when uh, the next book comes out is a tad bit of a moving target until uh, we confirm with, with Amazon about when the series is dropping. Well, I can't so wait for both. It's going to shift a little. I'm so glad it's on Amazon too because i know they're going to treat it right and i have amazon prime so i'm excited to be nice. able to, yeah i can't wait to watch it dude it's it's awesome well listen it's been an honor to talk to you i was so excited uh about having you on the podcast and on the radio show um i i i just i um i just want to thank you for everything that you've done for the country and now the way you're packaging this and just extolling the virtues of patriotism but doing it in such a realistic way i i just love what you're doing and it's an honor to talk to you and and really appreciate your time this morning oh thank you so much for having me on and if there's anything yeah that i that i try to do in my my writing or my my instagram or whatever else it's to uh to be thoughtful in in how i look at some of these these problems and and situations that we're dealing with yeah you are uh, that's the you've accomplished that 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 (laughs) oh thank you thank you i appreciate that 100 percent. all right listen buddy thank you so much have a great day you too take care thanks again bye-bye wow you kidding me jack carr so Honestly, again, I got started in these kind of novels with the Brad Thor books, and I I freaking love Brad Thor. And the fact that he helped Jack Carr get his start helps me love Brad Thor even more because he was a humble, like, here's a guy that has all the success in the world and all the reason to stop a guy like Jack Carr from actually putting books out because it's competition. And yet he embraced it. That's what a good person does. And then, so then we get the value of, what Jack Carr brings to us, of course, having been a Navy SEAL himself and these incredible books. Guys, if you don't read all five of his books, of course, the four are out and then the fifth one coming out sometime next year. And I cannot wait for the television series that will be on Amazon Prime with Chris Pratt. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. So really enjoyed that. Uh, appreciated his take on things. It was very realistic. Um, I share his lack of optimism for our nation's future right now because I'm not sure how you fix a relationship between human beings when there is no nuance. I have hope that's different than optimism. So, you know, I I have hope, and that's all I can tell you. I can't, I can't say I'm optimistic. I can say that I'm hopeful. Um, but anyway, great to have him on. Uh, just a huge opportunity to chat with him. And I, I'm, you can tell I'm probably, I'm a little starstruck. I love that guy. Freaking awesome. Thanks to our sponsor, Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, for being a part of this program. Um, I got to tell you, they have been so awesome in their support for the program. And, and and I don't just talk about them because they support the program. I talk about them because Tim, the owner, and I have been friends. And we became friends after I was a customer because I really respected his work ethic. I really respected his crew. I really respected his craftsmanship, his pride in what he was doing. 
And they did a wonderful job on our kitchen in Oldham County, which we enjoyed for several years before we sold the house. They also did our master bath. And I got to tell you, I'm pretty confident the beauty of our kitchen is why the house sold so quickly. It sold in like a day. And I think the kitchen really helped that process along. They're at 6200 Hit Lane. They have three designers on staff, George, Michelle, and Kelly. They're all waiting to help you. Guys, if you're going to do a turnkey kitchen remodel, you need to go to Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. But if you're a do-it-yourself or a contractor, they also have cabinets in stock that are beautiful, high-quality, and affordable. So check out their website at louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com, or you can give them a call at 502-930-3304. If you're in southern Indiana, if you're in Louisville or uh, northeast Kentucky, this, or excuse me, north, uh, kind of, you know, northern Kentucky, that, like, that that whole area, like, I-71, that, you guys need to go see them. It's louisvillecabinetsandcountertops.com. Thanks to D- uh, Dynamics Audio Productions for their help with the audio portion of this program. Uh, I am Leland Conway. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption. On Instagram, it's at Greatly Londo and at The Disruption Zone. You can download the podcast for free at uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and iHeartRadio's app. Please give us a five-star review. That helps spread the message, and uh, you'll get free uh, episodes delivered to your pocket as they are released. And right now, I'm trying to do two to three a week, trying to get as much information out there as we can with great guests and great conversations. So there you go. Uh, Thanks for listening. I am Leland Conway, The Disruption Zone.